Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the MAA Second Quarter 2021 Earnings Conference Call. During the presentation, all participants will be in a listen-only mode. Afterward, the company will conduct a question and answer session. As a reminder, this call is being recorded July 29, 2021. I will now turn the call over to Tim Argo, Senior Vice President of Finance of MAA, for opening comments. Thank you, Mallory, and good morning, everyone. This is Tim Argo, Senior Vice President of Finance for MAA. With me are Eric Bolton, our CEO, Al Campbell, our CFO, Rod Del Priori, our General Counsel, Tom Grimes, our COO, and Brad Hill, our Head of Transactions. Before we begin with our prepared comments this morning, I want to point out that as part of the discussion, company management will be making forward-looking statements. Actual results may differ materially from our projections. We encourage you to refer to the forward-looking statements section in yesterday's earnings release and our 34 Act filings with the SEC, which describe risk factors that may impact future results. These reports, along with a copy of today's prepared comments and an audio copy of this morning's call, will be available on our website. During this call, we will also discuss certain non-GAAP financial measures, a presentation of the most directly comparable GAAP financial measures, as well as reconciliations of the differences between non-GAAP and comparable GAAP measures can be found in our earnings release and supplemental financial data, which are available on the four investors page of our website at www.maac.com. I will now turn the call over to Eric. Thanks, Tim, and uh, good morning, everyone. MAA had a strong second quarter with rent growth, same-store NOI, and core FFO results ahead of expectations. Strong job growth and positive migration trends continue to drive higher demand for housing across our Sunbelt markets, and we expect continued strong rent growth. As noted in our earnings release, we are adjusting our performance expectations for the year and meaningfully increasing guidance for core FFO performance. Various factors that were driving employers and households to the Sunbelt markets before the impact of COVID continue. In addition, the COVID-related recalibrating by both employers and employees about where they choose to do business and live continues to also fuel higher demand trends across the Sunbelt. And those trends are accelerating. The new residents that we moved in year to date from outside of our Sunbelt footprint increased another 265 basis points as compared to the first six months of last year during the peak of COVID-related relocations. New move-ins from renters relocating to the Sun Belt currently constitute almost 13% of our new leases so far this year and are trending higher. During the second quarter, in a number of markets such as Phoenix, Tampa, Nashville, and Charleston, the percentage of new residents moving to our properties from outside the Sun Belt was even higher. As housing demand grows across the region, investor appetite for apartment real estate in the Sun Belt is also increasing. As Brad will touch on, we continue to see very aggressive bidding in the acquisition market with downward pressure on cap rates. MAA is well positioned to harvest the opportunities surrounding our long-time focus on these Sunbelt markets with a uniquely diversified strategy across the region. Strong leasing fundamentals coupled with extensive redevelopment and repositioning opportunities along with the continued rollout of new technology initiatives 
that will drive further margin expansion have us excited about the momentum from the same store portfolio. In addition, as noted in our earnings release, we continue to expand our external growth platform with earnings accretive new development and have several other projects currently under contract and in pre-development. As always, I want to send a big thank you and message of well done to our team of MAA associates. Your dedication and commitment to serving our residents and supporting each other is critical to our success and is key in driving our strong performance. Tom? Thank you, Eric, and good morning, everyone. We saw strong pricing performance across the portfolio during the second quarter. Blended lease of release pricing during the quarter was up 8.2%. As a result, all in place rents on a year-over-year -year basis grew to 3.1%. This is more than double the 1.3% growth rate of the first quarter. Average effective rent growth is our primary driver, and with the current blended pricing momentum, we expect it to continue to strengthen through the remainder of the year. In addition, average daily occupancy for the quarter increased to 96.4%. As outlined in the release, we saw steady progress on our product upgrade initiatives. This includes our interior unit redevelopment program, as well as the installation of our smart home technology package that includes mobile control of lights, thermostat, and security, as well as leak detection. For the full year 2021, we expect to complete just over 6,000 interior unit upgrades and install 22,000 smart home packages. We're also in the final stages of completing the repositioning work on our first eight full reposition properties and have another eight that will begin this year. Leasing activity for July has been strong. New lease over lease pricing month to date for July is running close to 17% ahead of rent on the prior lease. Renewal lease pricing in July is running 9% ahead of the prior lease prior lease. As a result, blended pricing for the portfolio is up 12% so far in July. Average daily occupancy for the month is currently 96.1, which is 80 basis points better than July of last year. Exposure, which is all vacant units plus notices through a 60-day period, is just 7.1%. This is 100 basis points better than prior year. This supports our ability to continue to prioritize rent growth and indicates that new lease pricing will peak seasonally later than historic norms. We are well positioned as we move into the third quarter. I'd like to echo Eric's comments and thank our teams as well. They've shown tremendous adaptability and resilience over the last year. I'm proud of them and excited for their progress in 21. Thanks, um, and I'll turn it over to Brad. Thanks, Tom, and good morning, everyone. The strong investor demand for multifamily properties in our footprint that began prior to COVID continues to strengthen today. Transaction volume is up significantly since the first quarter as investors look to buy into the strong rent growth outlook in our Sunbelt markets. Strong leasing fundamentals coupled with robust investor demand have accelerated pricing growth, putting additional downward pressure on cap rates. Cap rates on deals we underwrote in the second quarter have compressed another 25 basis points from first quarter, and the compression has accelerated in the last 30 days, pushing cap rates down approximately 100 basis points since first quarter of 20. 
We like the overall balance and unique diversification of our Sunbelt-oriented portfolio and have no need to change our market weightings by participating in the aggressive pricing market for existing properties. Therefore, we will continue to focus our capital deployment efforts on new development and pre-purchase opportunities, which provide higher yields, higher growth, and a much lower basis than the acquisition opportunities we're seeing in the current market. We can continue to make progress on our development pipeline. As noted in our release, we closed and started construction on two pre-purchase projects in the second quarter, bringing our pre-purchase and development pipeline both under construction and in lease up to 3,347 units at a total cost of $775 million. In addition to these two projects, we have a number of other development sites owned or under contract and hope to start construction on several projects later this year and into 2022. Our pre-development opportunities are in Denver, Salt Lake City, Tampa, Raleigh, and Nashville, all existing markets within our, foot, our portfolio footprint. We continue to see very strong leasing demand in our region of the country, and our recently completed properties in Dallas and Phoenix that are currently in lease-up reflect this strong demand. Both properties continue to perform very well with rents and leasing velocity at or above pro forma. All of our under construction projects remain on budget and on schedule despite continued cost pressures and supply chain disruptions. Our under construction projects have fixed cost construction contracts, so they remain on budget, but we are seeing continued cost pressure on new projects. While the lumber related run up in construction costs that we saw in the first half of the year has begun to mitigate a bit, we are seeing cost pressures related to other commodities uh, that we will continue to monitor. Supply chain disruptions related to appliances, cabinets, windows, and electrical components are occurring, but our teams have done a great job working around these issues with very minimal impact to our delivery schedules. As part of our planned dispositions for 2021, we exited the Jackson, Mississippi market at the end of the second quarter with the sale of our four properties. For these assets with an average age of 36 years, we achieved strong pricing of $160 million, which was above the top end of our expectations. We are early in the process, but we're in the market with three other properties that we expect to close before the year, the end of the year. That's all I have the way of comments. I'll turn it over to Al. Thank you, Brad. <clears throat> the, the strong second quarter operating performance produced core FFO that was at the top end of our prior guidance range, or eight cents per share um, above the midpoint, which also supports improved performance expectations over the remainder of the year. As you saw in our release, we are significantly increasing our guidance for both core FFO and same store performance for the full year. The increases are primarily based on projections of continued high occupancy levels remaining essentially full between 95.5% and 96% over the remainder of the year and con continued strong rental pricing growth over the second half, particularly during the third quarter with some typical seasonal moderation expected in the fourth quarter. This supports a revised revenue growth projection for the full year of 4% at the midpoint of guidance which is 200 basis points above the prior midpoint. Same-store operating expenses have largely been in line with our expectations for the year. As outlined early in the year, we expected expenses to be somewhat elevated during the first half, mainly related to uh, the impact of our double play program, the difficult prior year insurance renewal, as well as some continued pressure on real estate taxes, which would represent about 40% of our total operating costs overall. The growth rate for total operating expenses over the second half is still expected to moderate as originally projected, with some impact from increased property level performance-based awards and inflationary pressures on repair and maintenance costs, driving an increase to the midpoint of expected growth by about 50 basis points for the full year. 
finally, our balance sheet remains very strong. As Brad outlined in his comments, our development opportunities continue to grow. We expect our total pipeline of development communities and construction and lease-up comprised of both in-house and pre-purchase deals to end the year uh, just over $800 million, which is well within our defined risk tolerances, uh, while we expect the new high-yielding projects to be very accreted to earnings and value in 2023 and beyond. Our financing plans continue to include some activity over the second half of the year. Current market conditions appear to be stable and strong, supporting good pricing expectations across the maturity curve. We also continue to have positive discussions with the rating agencies regarding our corporate rating. We believe our current ratings are fairly conservative, and we look forward to continued discussions with all agencies over the next few quarters. That's all that we have in the way of prepared comments, so Mallory will we'll now turn the call back over to you for any questions. We'll now open the call up for questions. If you would like to ask a question, please press star and one on your touchtone phone. If you would like to withdraw your question, Press the pound key. We'll take our first call. First question from Nick Licko from Scotiabank. Uh, thanks. Good morning, everyone. In terms of the you know the new guidance on uh, blended lease growth that you have for the year, I guess it's you know it's implying some some uh, you know strengthening here, which you've seen in in July, and I assume you know for the rest of the third quarter it's assumed. Can you just maybe just give us a feel for how that's going to look in the back half of the year, and as well, you know if those numbers are still you know very high, sort of single digit, double digit numbers, you know what does that mean in terms of the benefit? that you're starting to get for the lease role as we're thinking about uh, next year's results. Hey, Nick, this is Al. I can start with that, and maybe Tim and I can, can join on some of those details. Um, so I think, you know, obviously, as you saw in the second quarter, we had tremendous, uh, you know, trend coming from the first quarter. Our average pricing, our blended pricing was 2.7 for the first quarter, 8.2 in the second quarter. And so as you look at the back half and you take the, the guidance that we put out of 6.5 to 7.5 for the full year, we're obviously assuming continued strength in that. And as I mentioned a bit in my calls, primarily in the third quarter, because um, July we've seen, and it's already very strong, we expect that to continue. We do expect some normal seasonal moderation in the fourth quarter, um, but still have strong numbers, but that blends down. So you can do the math on that. You're, you're around somewhere around 8% for the back half of the year when you do the math on our new guidance. And so, so that's what, obviously with continued strong and stable occupancy that we talked about, those are the under, under guidance in that. Yeah, I'll add to that, Nick, to kind of answer your second question about sort of what the what the baked in is. You know, the way we think about that is if you take sort of the half of the pricing in one year and half of the pricing in the next year, it should sort of average out to the full year effective rent growth. So to Al's point about our 7% blended lease over lease for the year, call it half of that, we expect to blend into 22, so certainly setting up some good good strength for next year. Okay, great. Thanks so much. Uh, second question is just on, you know, if we look at some markets that are, you know, if we look at some of the industry data uh, coming out on markets such as Atlanta, Tampa, Phoenix, right, um, which you also highlighted as being, you know, very strong markets. And I think you also said that the, you know, the migration into some of those markets is at, from without outside the Sun Belt is higher than other parts of the portfolio. But um, 
which may be a factor in this question. But I guess my what I'm wondering is when we look at the data, it feels like those markets right now, if you blend what's going on with rent growth this year and last year, uh, is actually looking better than pre-COVID. And you know maybe that migration is a benefit, or there's other factors. But um, just wanted to hear your thoughts on you know some of these really high rent growth markets, which are not you know they didn't have concessions, so this is pure rent growth you're seeing, uh, and it looks stronger than 2019. Maybe you could talk a little bit about you know what you think is driving that excess rent growth now versus pre-COVID. Yeah, Nick, I mean, it is our, um, it, it is uh, economy first. You know, we've seen those never let up the gas on on the growth. And um, so that's continued to roll on in those larger markets. And then secondarily, you know, this, this move-ins from out of market um, has grown over COVID levels um, and over prior year. You know, something like Phoenix, 21% of our move-outs were out of market. Tampa, 18% out of market. Nashville, 15 out of market. And Savannah, 16. Those are substantially higher than we saw even last year, um, which we believe it sort of accelerated the trend. So, you know, it is, it is those items, and you're seeing um, folks follow jobs announcements from places like Oracle and Tesla and Microsoft and places like that. Um, you know, and, and Nick, this is Eric, um, a statistic that I'll share with you that uh, Tim and some others pulled together that I think is pretty telling. Um, if you look at the MAA markets collectively, we, we have about 28% of the households in America live in our markets, 28%. But you look at where new household formation is occurring, our markets constitute 42% of projected new household formations. And that 42 is expected to grow to 44% next year. So uh, there's a lot of factors that come into you know, why the household formation trends are so much more robust in the Sun Belt. A lot of them, you know, but I think that uh, the, the, the trends that were there before COVID, uh, you know, are still there. And then I think COVID is uh, sort of cause, as I mentioned, companies and employers and households to sort of recalibrate their thinking a little bit about where they choose to live. And uh, I think that that has just added more fuel to the demand, uh, demand curve. All right. Thanks, Eric, and everyone else. Thank you, Nick. We'll take our next question from Neil Malkin, Capital One Securities. Your line is open. Hey, uh, good morning, everyone. Hey, Neil. Um, great, great quarter. I'm slow clapping you over here for the just amazing results. Just uh, continue to blow my mind. Um, you know, first, uh, the IRT and the Steadfast merger, um, <clears throat> you know, that portfolio seemed to be a little bit under, under the radar, but, you know, pretty sizable, um, mostly markets that overlap nicely with your portfolio, uh, you know, some B-quality B stuff in there, so opportunity to, uh, you know, do some highly uh, creative redevelopment. Just wondering if you looked at that deal um, and if there are any others like it out there and your thoughts on, um, you know, M&A using your, 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 uh, your stock price, given it's very attractive currency um, at this point in the cycle and given the strength that you probably expect for the Sunbelt market for uh, quite some time. Hey, Neil, it's uh, Eric. Um, you know, we are 
somewhat familiar with that portfolio, given the, uh, as you mentioned, the large overlap with a number of our markets. But candidly, this is that is not something that we looked at and is not something that we would have looked at uh, simply because I, I really saw or didn't see uh, meaningful strategic value in, um, in, in trying to pursue that. Uh, the only new markets for us would have been in Indiana, Oklahoma, and their small exposure in Chicago. And frankly, those are not markets we're really interested in, uh, in pursuing. Uh, in addition, the, the in-place financing um, on the portfolio uh, was not really a good fit with where we're, uh, you know, our balance sheet strategy and where we're working to get the balance sheet position to. So, you know, absent a strategic, a solid strategic rationale um, or uh, some form of an assessment that, you know, uh, a big opportunity really makes us stronger in some way, uh, just getting a little size uh, is not something we're really uh, – interested in trying to do. We're, we're look, looking to strengthen the platform. We're looking to make ourselves better if we do something strategic, not just get a little bit bigger. And certainly, uh, uh, absent some sort of a strategic uh, compelling reason to do it, you know, wading into this super competitive acquisition market and paying top dollar uh, in this environment is, is frankly just something we weren't interested in doing. Yeah, uh, thanks. Appreciate your... Uh... The comments there. Uh, other one uh, for me is, uh, you know, you look at, especially this quarter, um, you know, EQR, ABB, the sort of coastal bellwethers, uh, have both made pretty, uh, uh, you know, candid comments about the uh, regulatory uh, challenging, less attractive, you know, coastal markets, you know, Cal California, New York, et cetera, um, and have started to, uh, and to use your word, wade into your your market, your backyard, and obviously that's a you know a positive in terms of, of um, you know confirming your your thesis on on your markets. But uh, what do you think the, the the biggest I guess you know threats or risks and then potential opportunities um, could be um, now that some of the the big boy you know well capitalized uh, REITs are 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 starting to sniff around uh, your territory. Well, you know, it's a uh, it's a big region, and uh, a lot of market uh, markets uh, across the region. Uh, MAA has uh, a fairly, in addition to a long, long history, uh, focused for the last 27 years on this region and on these markets. Uh, we also have, uh, I think, a very unique uh, approach to how we diversify across the region. And, uh, and so, you know, we think that the long history we have on the region, the, the in-depth, deep knowledge we have of the markets and the sub-markets um, probably continues to create some level of advantage for us. I think, uh, you know, over time, platform capabilities um, associated with scale and revenue management, cost of capital, and, and market knowledge um, to support both operations and to also su to support disciplined new growth can drive competitive advantages and long-term outperformance. And, uh, and as I say, with a 27-year history um, focused on this region, uh, you know, I continue to like our chances. Um, yeah, okay. Uh, uh, appreciate that. Thank you, guys, and uh, just tremendous, tremendous quarter. Thanks, Neil. Thank you, Neil. We'll take our next question from John Kim, CMO Capital Markets. 
Your line is open. Thanks. Thank you. Good morning. Um, I wanted to ask about your guidance for, for blended lease growth for the year. Um, it actually seems conservative at 7%, just given what you printed in the second quarter, and then 16% uh, July uh, so far. Uh, on top of that, Tom, I think you mentioned in your prepared remarks that new lease pricing will peak seasonally later than the normal. Um, oh, can you elaborate on that comment? And then also, if you really anticipate the, uh, the lease growth to slow significantly from what you have so far in July. Let me start with that, John, and maybe, maybe Tim and, and Tom can jump in on some of that, too. I mean, in terms of what we have our guidance, if you, if you look at what we're projecting for the back half of the year, I mean, we projected a strong performance. We're, we're taking the third quarter, as we talked about. Um, we continue that, that expect that to continue sort of July's trends into that. But we do expect some modest um, seasonal uh, moderation in the fourth quarter, and that's normal. I mean, we typically that happens. And so I'll say this. We're still projecting a fourth quarter that's well above probably anything we've recently done in recent history for sure. Um, so it's strong, but we will have there's there's just less demand in that period, and good thing is that we've designed it so that there's less leases being signed as well, so it has less of an impact as well. But we do expect some. So just to give you a, t a flavor, you know, you could you could do the math of what we're talking about, but but you're you're talking more like 10% or, or more expectations in the third quarter, moderating down to you know six or so in the fourth. That's still still very strong projection leading to the full year blend that we're talking about. So. So that so that it's very good to see these trends, but we reflect what we really think is going to happen over the full year. And one point of clarification, John: the the July is 12% on blended. I think you might have said 16 or 17. The new lease was that, but the blended was 12. So we're expecting sort of August to be pretty similar to that, and then start to to trend down as as demand typically starts to wane a bit. You know, John, one 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 quick way to think about it is, you know, blended a combination of both new and renewal pricing year to date through the first half of the year was 6%. The forecast assumes that that blended performance over the back half of the year, even with seasonal factors, is 8%. So um, you know it's 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 still positive and and good and and we think it's it's you know they're definitely reasonable to work off that kind of assumption. Okay, thank you. And then for the um, the guidance for same store expenses, um, it went up for the year. A lot of that is due to higher repairs and maintenance. Are you accelerating any of these? Any of these costs, just given the strength in the market, or are you doing anything different as far as expensing versus capitalizing certain items? No, no changes really, in, no. In, in expenses and capitalizing. We would expect repair and maintenance costs to come down in the back half of the year just because of the odd comparisons this year. Um, we have some inflationary pressure on some specific items in that, but that's in, in Tim and Al's guidance for the for There's the, two yeah. things in that. First, it's a pretty modest increase in, in the range overall, 50 basis points, John, but there's really two things in that. One is, is uh, Perform property level performance awards for this strong performance that we we're seeing expected for the year. I mean, we're very glad to see it and 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 um, proud of our teams for producing that. So there'll be some of that. That's the bulk. Of it. That's probably the bulk of it. And then you have some inflationary pressures on repairing main supplies and things that we do, which is typical across, I would say, everybody's body right now, the full market, but pretty small overall. Thank you. We'll take our next question from Bradley Heffern, RBC Capital Markets. Your line is open. Hey. Yeah, hey everyone, thanks. Um, 
since we're on the topic of guidance, can you just talk through the 3Q guide a little bit? Obviously, in the second quarter, you have the 169 for core FFO, and then the midpoint of the third quarter range is 168. So is there some sort of offsetting factor to this, you know, strong, strong uh, blended rate growth that you're seeing? I think if you look historically, you know, over the last several years, third, in terms of core FFO, third quarter is usually sort of the low point, and it's, it's really just, you know, with all of the activity going on in third quarter, we have a, the expenses are at their highest point. We're obviously getting, getting the highest rents as well, but just the, the seasonality of expenses usually drives, and I think, honestly, like I said, I think if you look at the last yeah. several years, Q3 is probably our low point in terms of core FFOs. So nothing normal nothing pattern. structural driving that other than the normal patterns. Okay, got it. Um, and then going back to the first question on the call, you know, this double-digit strength we're seeing in a lot of your markets, how long do you think that goes on for broadly? I mean, is, is demand just so strong that it won't taper until you see either demand fall off or supply pick up? Um, or is there sort of just a, a kind of one-timer pricing of the rent level that these markets can bear? Well, you know, I mean, fundamentally, it comes down to just, you know, supply-demand sort of balance. And uh, we certainly continue to see uh, evidence that the demand level is going to remain uh, strong other than sort of normal seasonal patterns that we've alluded to. It's hard for me to point to any sort of definitive uh, reason as to why the demand side of the equation is likely to show any significant moderation. I think that uh, if you want to think about um, some level of um, catch-up occurring, if you will, as a consequence of uh, what went on last year, you know, we went back and took a look at what we expected to occur last year in the second quarter in our pricing before we knew about COVID. And, you know, we, obviously last year during COVID, we came in short of those original expectations to the tune of about 250 basis points in terms of blended lease over lease pricing. So if one wants to think about, you know, this year's performance has somewhat of a, uh, uh, an extra juice to it as a consequence of recovery from last year, uh, from a lease over lease perspective, I would argue that probably no more than 200, 250 basis points of that is a function of recovery from last year. Overwhelmingly, the, what's driving it is just the, all the factors that are driving the really strong demand side of uh, the business uh, um, in, in terms of employers and, and employees finding you know, reasons to come to the region. Um, and, then, and then new jobs is continuing to form here. And as I pointed out a moment ago, with our markets constituting um, collectively 42% of the uh, household formation, projected household formations in uh, 2021, uh, and that's growing to 44% based on the information we get from economy.com and some of these other uh, services, you know, it suggests to us that the demand side of the equation is likely to remain pretty robust. And uh, we do think that it's unlikely for all the reasons Brad alluded to uh, surrounding um, what's going on with construction costs, land sites, and things of that nature. We think that, uh, you know, we probably see supply levels remain fairly elevated like they are now going into next year, uh, but it's hard for me to envision supply levels picking up materially from where they are. So, you know, as we sit here today, I think we're pretty, we're pretty optimistic that we're going to see pretty good uh, favorable uh, demand-supply uh, relationship um, for us going into next year. Okay, thank you. 
will take our next question from Nick Joseph, Citibank. Thanks. Um, you guys talked about the uh, competition for assets and all the new entrants into the market. Are you seeing a similar level of competition for developments in pre-sale, or is it a little different than uh, stabilized properties? Nick, this is Brad. Um, I mean, I would say that it's certainly aggressive. Um, there is, there's certainly a lot of equity that's looking to put money out uh, in development. I would say it's a little less. Um, you know, I think the uh, the demand for uh, immediate earning assets is a bit higher than than the demand for assets that are not going to produce for, you know, three years. So it, it's certainly aggressive out there. Uh, with a lot of capital, but but I, w I would say it is less in the development arena and in the uh, JV arena than it is uh, in the acquisition market. Thanks. And then um, you, you talked about the population movement a lot uh, with people entering the market, but when you look at uh, the move-outs and obviously turnover is still low, um, are, are you seeing people leave the markets or, you know, any changes for reason to move out? Um, for the data that you collect? No, um, you know, we're seeing a little bit higher move outs, slightly higher on home buying, and but primarily job transfer, which is kind of what you would expect, especially comparing to last year when there was less of that kind of movement. And then 4% of our move outs are to out of area, and that's down from 5%. So sort of one, once people move here, they, they tend to stay in the area, um, and job transfers and home buying generate the change. Thanks. We'll take our next question from Alex Coma, Zellman Associates. Hi, thank you for taking the question. Um, when you look at your move-ins this quarter and, and the demographics um, of the move-ins, are they similar to your current portfolio? And do they vary from the out-of-state movers versus within the same markets? Um, the, when, when we look at it, one, one thing that is interesting that is occurring, Alex, is you would think with the large run-up in um, pricing opportunity for us that that would stress on affordability. But we're seeing affordability stay in that 19 to 20% range or the rent to income ratio, I should say, in that 19 to 20% range. So the incomes are, um, are, that are coming in are higher. Um, and that is, um, that's, gives us plenty of room to run in that area. Got it, thank you very much. And moving to the smart home tech side, uh, you've talked in the past about the A-B testing and potentially getting some top line juice from uh, including the smart home technology. Uh, have you updated that analysis and are you still seeing the same sort of top line benefits there? Yes, we're, we're getting a very solid 20 to $25 uh, bump in that. Um, and then what we'll begin to see as well, we really underwrote on the thing that we knew we would get or we felt strongly about was the revenue opportunity. We're beginning to see the benefits um, of our mobile maintenance plan, which was um, we, we just installed um, mobile maintenance or upgraded mobile maintenance for the portfolio in the second quarter, then that will begin to um, create some efficiency for us on the expense side on leak detection, as well as just um, saving time between units, responding to calls real time, those kind of things. Got it. Thank you very much. 
Thank you, Alex. We will take our next question from Amina Schweitzer from Baird. Lines open. Thanks. Thanks. Good morning. You've gotten plenty of questions on guidance, but I did want to ask about your occupancy outlook that's embedded for the full year. It sounds like you may have seen a slight increase in turnover more recently, given the sequential occupancy decline in July. How are you thinking about balancing rate and occupancy for the remainder of the year? And do you think you've reached the structurally high level of occupancy for your portfolio in the second quarter? Yeah. Amanda, I'll start with that, and then Tom, you can. You can but uh, we, the way we look at it is, we've talked about in the past. You know, around the 96 point level, which we are, we're talking about for the back half of the year, high 95s to mid 96 range. We're projecting that's essentially full, given given our turnover and the way the way things are right now in our portfolio. So we're projecting to be stable with that, uh, very strong. Um, but to give ourselves in the back half, you know, a little bit of room to continue pushing on price. We certainly didn't want to expect occupancy to continue growing from where it is, because we'd like to continue putting these good prices into the portfolio. So. So that's what's underlying uh, our expectations and our forecasting. I mean, yeah, and, and Amanda, on balancing price and occupancy, I think we've always believed that when there is an opportunity to build strength in embedded rent growth, that we should take that. And um, that is something that we did before the pandemic. We were re really pushed that, and that gave us gave us higher ERU or effective rent growth for all in place ahead of the downturn, which allowed us to weather the storm. And again, we're in an opportunity where we can push rate. And that is, I would say, primary. Um, and honestly, I'd be happy from 95.5 to 96.5. And I, I, I think we were a little higher in second quarter, even with the rent increase than, frankly, we wanted to be. But given where current occupancy is and, more importantly, where exposure is, I, I would sort of expect us to stay in that 96.1 and above range um, for the next couple of months. But, you know, I mean, we are building strength now, and the opportunity to really help our, our future is to grow rate right now, and we're, we're, we're heavy that way. And Amanda, this is Eric. One, one final point I'll make on that. I mean, we do monitor very closely the percentage of our turnover that's occurring because of uh, the rent increase, and we track that. And uh, in the second quarter, you know, the move-outs that we had due to the rent increase were about 7% of our move-outs. And you compare and contrast that to 2019, a more normalized year, and our move-outs due to rent increase range anywhere from 7 to 10%. So, you know, we've, we've, we've monitored pretty closely. If we saw move-outs uh, jump up a lot because of rent increase, then we would start to taper back a little bit. But at this point, no, no real change occurring. That's helpful. Certainly a good problem to have. And then yeah. on development, how are you thinking about staging the construction starts for those pre-development projects you discussed? And then as you think about adding additional projects to that pre-development pipeline, are you still finding the best opportunities in some of those longer-term repurposing and permitting opportunities that you've talked about? Well, uh, this is Brad, Amanda. Certainly in terms of the staging, um, you know, the developments that we're working on now, we've got a, a pipeline right now of about $800 million or so that, that we're really working through both own sites and then sites under contract and that we're working on pre-development on and then also uh, our pre-purchase platform. So, um, you know, those take, uh, you know, given where we are in the cycle and given how hard it is to get find sites and get sites entitled, um, the staging of those, um, you know, it, you can't perfectly uh, map those out, uh, frankly. And, and a lot of the developments that we're doing in-house 
uh, are for sites that need to be rezoned, so it takes some time to, to get through that process. Um, you know, but frankly, really what we're doing on those is, um, is working through the pre-development process and our approvals. And then really once we get to a point where we can have a, uh, a GMP and known construction uh, prices locked in that's acceptable to us, we, we look to move forward uh, with those opportunities. I would say the pre-purchase timeline is a, is a bit more truncated because again, we're putting off some of the risk associated with the pre-development work um, to, to the developers that we're partnering with. So those have a little bit shorter time period on them, uh, sometimes, not all the time. Um, so we're able to, to work those in uh, kind of to our starts uh, a, a little quicker than stuff that we're doing uh, in-house. So uh, a long way of saying, you know, we can't really perfectly map that out. Um, it's really once we get costs and approvals and uh, everything behind us on, on those projects. And then I, what was the second part of your question, Amanda? Just in terms of future opportunities to add to your pre-development pipeline? Are you still finding some of the best opportunities in those longer-term repurposing or permitting opportunities that you've talked about in the past? Yeah, I mean, we, we certainly have opportunities there. I, I think I mentioned a moment ago, we've got about 800 uh, million that, that we think we can repopulate here. And, and that's a mixture of, of stuff that uh, is on balance sheet and then also our, our pre-purchase, um, um, you know, the, the sites that our development team are working on now uh, sometimes are, um, you know, a year and a half to get, get through the uh, development process. So, so it's taking a little bit of time uh, to do that on some of them. But, um, you know, those are great opportunities. But I I'll say um, it is becoming increasingly difficult to find sites. It's becoming increasingly difficult to get sites uh, zoned and permitted and, and really work through that process. Um, so, so those are taking uh, a, a bit longer. But we feel really good about uh, you know the, the pipeline that we have and then the ability to repopulate that as we go forward. And, and Amanda, you know, this is Eric. I, I would add that that we do think that uh, we see the. Um, competition for opportunities that involve rezoning or that involve a much longer process, the competition for those sites is not quite as fierce as what you find in something that is shovel-ready, if you will, and ready to go. That's because a lot of it, particularly among the smaller uh, uh, developers and among the um, some of the uh, private capital coming into the market, they have a mandate that uh, doesn't allow them to take quite that much time uh, often. And so we do find better opportunities more often than not uh, and more, you know, those projects that require a little bit more time. That's helpful. Thanks for the time. Yeah. Thank you, Amanda. We'll take our next question from Austin Worschmidt, eBank Capital. Your line is open. Thanks and uh, good morning, everybody. Um, I was curious if you mark to market and, and trend out rents on your existing development pipeline, what the, the difference or upside between the yield that, that you underwrote and, and what that might suggest. And do you think that the projects could stabilize ahead of the, the timeline that, that you've outlined in the release? Austin, this is Brad. Um, you know, I'd say uh, broadly, again, we're seeing strength, as I mentioned in my comments, in our lease-ups, and uh, we're seeing that both in velocity and we're seeing that also in rate. So I would say, um, you know, if, if we trended that out, we're, we're going to see, uh, you know, some good positive momentum uh, in the yields that, 
uh, that we have there. Um, you know, certainly for the two that we have uh, in lease up right now, that's the case. The other ones that are under construction where pre-leasing is kind of just starting, it's a little too early to say on those, but we're certainly seeing uh, really, really good momentum as we go forward there. And in terms of the velocity, you know, we did move up uh, the expected stabilization date of our novel Midtown deal in Phoenix by two quarters. Um, that again, that market has has been extremely strong, um, and, and the lease up uh, is going very, very well and ahead of expectations. So we have moved that date up. Not, not to put you on the spot, I mean, could you quantify what the yield you think the yield upside is? I think you you you've said six percent is sort of the average yield across the pipeline. I mean, do you think it's is it fifty basis points, uh, something less in any sense? Putting a range. You know, I would no, I wouldn't say fifty basis points, but um, you know, I would say it's you know, call it twenty basis points at this point. But but again, as we get into uh, you know the the novel midtown deals, you know. 46% occupied, and um, you know it's really it's too early to to put numbers on that. But broadly, I would say it's you know 20 plus basis points. Got it. And then, and then as far as redevelopment, you know I think the average increase was around 11%, but clearly the new lease rates you're achieving across the portfolio are even higher. What, what do you think the premium is you're you're getting on redevelopment today? I think the premium's right at 11%, honestly, because the way we really try to try to understand what the market will pay for the premium and match that, and then let the market rate um, uh, push us up from there. So, you know, our redevelopment unit may be getting, you know, $200 more, 100 of that is redevelopment, the redevelopment premium, 100 of its market growth. Got it. Got it. And then one last quick one for me is what, what's the loss to lease today on the portfolio? Well, Austin, you know, you can think about that in a lot of different ways. And kind of talking to Nick earlier, one of the, the way we really think about that, you know, because it can be very seasonal depending on what time of the year you're looking at. But, you know, I think we're expecting 7% blended lease of release for this year. So that obviously, you know, half of that or so carries into next year. So, um, certainly in a good spot, and, and I would it'll depend on kind of where the full year lease of release ends up. Okay, that's fair. Thanks, guys. Thank you. We'll take our next question from Rob Stevenson from Janie. Good morning, guys. Um, Tom, can you talk a little bit about, you know, the markets and, you know, first half versus second half and which ones you expect to see the strongest incremental growth um, from the first half of the year to the second half of the year, and then which ones, you know, because either they've had such a big pop already are going to wind up seeing the least um, sort of incremental growth as you move forward here? Yeah, I mean, that's a relative question, Rob, um, because, you know, at this point in July, you know, our, our leasing growth, I've got six markets below 10% blended rent growth, um, the, and the slower of those are um, D.C. and Houston, which are, at, I think, 5.2 and 5.7 for blended rent growth, but that's encouraging progress for those. Um, so I don't think that we, we have seen – I don't see any market where it's slowing, to be honest with you, in terms of the, the market. Again, we'll have seasonal trends, as you're well aware of, but, um, you know, um, places like Phoenix and Tampa 
um, continue to accelerate and places like uh, Atlanta and Austin have really picked it up recently and we're seeing that on into Dallas and across the portfolio. I mean, the number of markets, the majority of our markets are, large majority of our markets are now pushing higher than 10% blended rent growth. So um, I, I, I don't see any sort of tipping point that's been reached other than seasonality. And of course, Eric made the point earlier of uh, we're, we're, we're pushing through stout renewal increases and we're getting less pushback than we have historically. Okay. And then Al, when does the, uh, or when did, or when does the insurance renew? And did you get hit with any type of major increase on the last renewal just simply because of higher construction costs on replacing units or hey, finishes, Rob. et cetera? Then I'll answer that. Yeah, we, we did our renewal effective July 1, um, and it was roughly, call it 14, 15% year over year, which is right in line with what we we're expecting. We didn't see anything necessarily driven specifically by development costs. Frankly, the, the winter storm URI is really what drove it more than anything. I think we would have had, you know, a lower without that, but we, we feel like we're in a good position now and taking the appropriate amount of risk on balance sheet and expect to see that continue to decline going forward. Okay. And then one last one. Given uh, your markets, how many uh, units do you have that you'd evict if you could but are legally prevented from doing so? And then how many units overall in the portfolio are currently in the eviction process? Oh, Rob, I'd say on that, it is, it's very limited. And you can see that with our collections of 99.2% uh, right now for the, for the second quarter. It's been strong. I don't expect the change um, in um, rules on evictions to change anything much. And, um, you know, we're working closely with uh, relief uh, fund folks to, to manage that process. So I, honestly, I don't, I don't see that it makes a big difference going forward. Okay. Thanks, guys. We'll take our next question from Rich Anderson, SMBC. Your line's open. Thanks. Good morning. Um, so, the, you know, the ultimate sign of fundamental strength, not that we need a hint, is when new lease growth is greater than renewal um, lease, uh, you know, rents. And so I'm curious if in the past when that's, that condition has existed with MAA, how long does it last and is there anything strategically you're doing for an incoming new resident that, you know, is perhaps driving that, you know, that level of, of growth relative to renewals? Yeah, um, Rich, I, what, I'll, what I'll say is um, it is also a sign that we have opportunity on renewal, and I'll tell you the renewal pricing that was achieved, you know, in the second quarter was really priced in the first quarter and vice versa. So I think you'll see that delta begin to narrow um, as we pre-price going out. August, you know, um, uh, July was higher than, than the second quarter. And we'll see that continue to grow a bit. Um, but uh, and the new lease rate really, frankly, gives us good cover to begin to move that out up. And again, as, as Eric mentioned, we have um, we have a low pushback on um, renewal accept rates because they can get out and see the housing market pricing is very transparency and transparent, and they they know they've got a good deal right now. You know, and Rich, in, in addition to what Tom alludes to in terms of the uh, the gap closing just as a natural consequence of us uh, repricing on renewals. 
um, faster. <clears throat> I mean, there's a timing difference between how we price new leases versus how we price renewals, which he alluded to. Uh, but in addition to that, I mean, what, frankly, what, what defines how long the opportunity uh, continues is a function of just basic uh, sort of demand supply characteristics. And as I've alluded to, you know, we, we, as we sit here today, we, we, we don't see anything near term over the next year or so that's likely to disrupt kind of this, this strong environment that we find ourselves in. So, uh, you know, we think that we're going we're gonna to keep pushing hard. Uh, today on the uh, on the uh, uh, pricing increases for new move-ins, and today we are pricing renewals for what we will achieve, you know, 60, 90 days from now. And uh, and when we get 60, 90 days from now, you know, we'll be pricing those renewals at a at a steeper rate. So, you know, it it, it sort of as you say, it's 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 the it's an indication of of real strong fundamentals. And, um, and we don't see anything near term that's likely to disrupt that. Um, and then when you, you mentioned early on the 13% of new leasing is coming from outside the Sun Belt, and you, you know, gave some examples of some markets that are above that, um, what, what was that percentage, you know, kind of 2019? What, what would it be typically? I'm curious how much it's grown to that 13% level. I'll give you an example of it. Uh, you know, um, in Atlanta, as an example, uh, you know, 12% of our move-ins came from outside the Sun Belt, and in 2019, that was a little over 8%. Um, in a market like uh, Phoenix, which is incredibly strong in terms of move-ins from outside the Sun Belt, that was uh, over 21% in, in, uh, so far this year. And compared to the same period in 2019, that was a little over 18%. So it's about a 411 basis point jump uh, from, uh, you know, uh, uh, 2019 in Phoenix. Uh, we're seeing, uh, you know, saw a big jump in Tampa um, from 2019. It's about o over 18% today versus 13% in 2019. So 380 basis point uh, improvement. Uh, so it, it varies a bit by market, but it's it's pretty. Going back to 2019, before COVID, uh, it's up. It move-ins from outside the Sun Belt are up. And let's see, it, uh, looking at our markets here, uh, the only market that I see where it's actually the move-ins from outside the Sun Belt are actually down is one, and that's Huntsville, Alabama. Okay. Um, let, just a real quick last question. A lot of talk about, you know, the cadence between suburbs and, and urban, uh, coastal versus Sunbelt, all those types of uh, geographical dynamics. Do you see within your portfolio any particular strength where the, the population is, is it kind of denser? Do you, do you have better performance there versus a more rural-looking uh, area, or is it just, you know, the whole place is great? All right. I mean, broadly, the whole place is, is good, Rich, but, the you know, the delta between urban, suburban, and interlude and AB was, was wider during COVID. Both have narrowed. So, uh, you know, A and B assets, the, the difference between the two is only 130 basis points, but it's 7-4 for our lagging A and 8-7 for our leading B. I mean, those are both numbers I'm happy to have. And then the same real story, it's almost the same for sort of urban interloop versus the suburban assets. It's seven, five and eight, seven. So, um, you know, there's, there is, um, 
both are strong and there's just a little bit more of a supply headwind in the urban markets, but we don't see them as less desirable. Got it. Thanks very much. Thank you, Rich. We'll take our next question from John Poloski. Green, the line's open. Great. Thanks so much. Uh, Brad, would you mind sharing the cap rate on the Jackson, Mississippi exit and the anticipated pricing on the, the handful of upcoming dispositions? Yeah, so uh, we look at this a couple of ways. Uh, one is, is the cap rate on MA's uh, trailing 12 numbers. That was about a 5-4, um, but looked at on a, from a buyer's perspective with uh, kind of adjusted taxes and insurance, it was about a 4-7 cap rate. Um, you know, going forward on the three that we're looking to sell, those uh, both of the metrics are very similar because there's not a big reevaluation of taxes on those. But uh, we're looking in the call it four and a half, four seven five range. And John, just to keep in mind that four seven cap rate on the exit from Jackson, Mississippi, that's on 36 year old uh, assets. So average age of that portfolio was 36 years old in Jackson, Mississippi. Yep, understood. And the, uh, the Brad, the uh, upcoming dispositions, what markets are they in? So we have two in Savannah and one uh, that is in uh, Charlotte. Great. Uh, last one for me, uh, Tom. Um, Single-family rental build-to-rent communities, are, uh, the deliveries are probably going to accelerate pretty meaningfully. And the early vintages do have smaller floor plans, a little bit more like apartments. So curious, any case studies you're seeing when a build-to-rent community opens nearby, any impact on leasing, any, any statistics or any color you could share would be of interest? No, it's it's pretty limited, um, and and there you know while that is a booming space, it is a relatively small space. But the place we've probably seen the most um, that sort of thing happening is in Phoenix, and it certainly hadn't slowed our momentum there. And just as a reminder, I mean it's five percent of our moveouts are to single-family rental, which is you know really dwarfed by the job transfer number. It is not a driving factor, and. We love it that they are raising their rents as well, um, though. I mean, it is, it, it's been steady where they've been. Okay. Thanks for the time. Thank you, John. We'll take our next question from Buck Horn, Ringman James. Hey, thanks. Good morning. Just a... Yeah, thank you. Real quickly, um, any uh, thoughts or, you know, potential impact from uh, eviction moratorium roll-off um, in your portfolio and or, you know, how are you working with residents uh, right now to potentially recover um, any rental assistance payments uh, through the government program? Buck, this is uh, Eric. And, you know, um, no, we don't really see much change um, coming as a consequence of the uh, expiration of that CDC moratorium. Um, frankly, it's it's not uh, in our portfolio. Uh, we haven't seen uh, a lot of that activity. Uh, and, and I think that, um, you know, as we touched on, ever since this started last spring, I mean, we have been very active in reaching out to our residents and offering, um, you know, assistance in various ways uh, with over, you know, 8,000 of our residents that we've assisted. And, you know, we continue those efforts. Um, and, uh, 
and you know we we are also very uh, uh, active in doing all we can to assist our residents uh, with making application that need it uh, for financial assistance. We're uh, you know very aggressive and active in showing them uh, where to go. We are uh, where we can. We're actually doing it for them and making application on their behalf. Uh, but it's not a big percentage of the portfolio. But we don't really see any near-term change occurring um, uh, as a con just as a consequence of getting into August and the CDC moratorium no longer being in place. Great, thanks. And um, just following up on the single-family rental uh, question there, just maybe a different tack on it. Um, a lot of builders are out there and a lot of capital is out there building out entire, you know, communities and running them effectively like horizontal apartments. Any, any ev evolution in your thought process about uh, maybe a partnership or strategic partnership with a, a, a home builder or, or someone else to uh, invest in a single-family rental community? Well, you know, it's something we kick around from time to time, Buck. Uh, I mean, we have a number of our communities where we actually do have uh, adjacent townhomes and, uh, and, and, and housing structures, if you will, that are not traditional apartment type and, and design. Um, and if we were to, you know, find an opportunity to uh, uh, do something where you've got a, a purpose-built uh, single-family uh, community in the you know contiguous um, um, area with you know common amenities and all that kind of stuff, uh, yeah, I mean it's something that that we would uh, we would invest in. Um, we, you know, we're not we're not at, out actively looking to make that happen at the moment. Uh, we think we're able to capture a lot of good growth right now with what we're doing uh, with all the projects that Brad's alluded to. But um, we've we've got, if you will, a little bit of that in the portfolio already, and it's something that you know, uh, if we find opportunities in that regard to to look at, we we wouldn't hesitate to to look at it. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Mark. Thank you, Mark. We have no further questions. I will return the call MAA for closing remarks. Okay, well, we appreciate everyone joining us this morning, and uh, any follow-up questions, uh, feel free to reach out anytime. Thank you.